0: Well, please uh, take your Bibles, uh, church, and turn with me now to the Gospel according to Luke, once again, to chapter 1, and this morning for the Sermon Scripture, uh, we'll continue uh, where we left off last time. We left off in chapter 1, verse 25, and so we come to verse 26 this morning, and we will read through verse 38, and let me invite you now to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's holy, inerrant Inspired Word, Luke 1, 26 and following. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts. You may be seated. Well, at this time, the little ones are dismissed to the nursery. And uh, let us pray once again and ask for the Lord's blessing, shall we? Again, we thank you, heavenly Father, for your word. And we ask now with all of our hearts that you would speak to us by your holy spirit words of everlasting life and the great truths of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, virgin-born savior he who was crucified for our sins, and he who rose again. Come to us, we pray, and speak to every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we did last Sunday together, that celebration in our worship service is preceded in our service by our recitation of the Apostles' Creed, and in that creed, we confess and we profess that we believe that Jesus Christ our Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I don't know if every time we confess that together, you stop. It's hard, I know, and there's more to say right after that. Think about what is really being said We have before us this morning the account from Luke's gospel of the incarnation and conception of Jesus Christ, how it is to be and how it shall take place. And we have that story in its beauty and in its simple majesty. Uh, I suppose if we were to spend our entire lives searching through all the world's literature, We could not find a story more beautiful than this one, the incarnation and the nativity of our Lord Jesus. I think we can say without hesitation and without qualification that it is indeed the most beautiful story ever heard and ever told. And moreover, it is particularly penetrating because it is rooted in truth and in reality, It is fixed in history, in an actual place, in an actual time, and with real people, and therefore it goes beyond any mythological beauty and is particularly piercing because Luke's story is actually true. We begin with the setting. Luke places us far to the north from where we had been last Sunday, up in the region of Galilee in a village called Nazareth. Do you remember where the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist comes? you remember that that announcement takes place in the temple in Jerusalem? It was given to an elderly priest, a respected religious leader of the people, but it came, as we observed last Sunday, uh, to the very center of Israel's theocracy and her worship. But now the scene moves uh, to a small remote village named Nazareth in an out-of-the-way district of northern Israel. Uh, This was something that drew amazement from the first century hearers of the story because the area of Galilee was the chosen province for this announcement and not Judea, Judea which had been the heartland of God's activity for hundreds of years. Galilee was a land overrun by foreigners. It had been mongrelized in its population. It was despised by the surrounding peoples, in large part because it was inhabited by a large number of Gentiles. Galilee had a terrible reputation among the cultured elites and the religious leadership and elite back in Jerusalem. And the little town of Nazareth was... Really, a non place. Uh, you can look through the entire Old Testament and you will not find Nazareth mentioned even once. And this is true, interestingly, despite the fact that Matthew says that when Jesus settled in Nazareth, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Which prophecy? It's very difficult to say. Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. You can read all of Josephus' writings. You will not find it mentioned there. You can look through the rabbinical writings and find no reference to it. In fact, there had been no verifiable historical or archaeological evidence of the town of Nazareth until it was discovered in 1962 on an inscription. This was an out-of-the-way shoddy, corrupt, uh, halfway stop between two port cities, overrun by Gentiles, especially Roman soldiers. It was in, considered in such low regard that when straight-talking Nathaniel, the one in whom there was no guile, who always told it like it was, when he heard that Jesus hailed from Nazareth, responded, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? In his mind, it was only associated with corruption. How can anything good come from there? First century hearers were beside themselves to hear that Messiah came from this little town. Say, so did you hear that the angel Gabriel announced to a virgin girl that she should give birth to the Messiah? Really? Really? Where did that happen? Nazareth. What? Where? What did you say? That was Nazareth. And so, in skipping over Judea and Jerusalem, the angel Gabriel skips over the temple, came to Nazareth to Mary's house, which must not have been much to look at either. And Mary wasn't much in the world's eyes. She was too young to know much of what was going on in the world. According to early tradition, she was only about 14 years old at the time the announcement came to her. This was about the age that Jewish young women would be uh, typically betrothed. She was simple, uh, lowly. She was not famous. She was unimportant in the world's eyes. She was unknown. It is a stunning contrast and a stark difference from the rabbinical ideal. The birth of the forerunner was announced in the temple to a priest. But as we pass from the forerunner to the Messiah, from the temple to Galilee, from the priest to the humble virgin, we find that Gabriel, sent by God, comes to a simple, obscure, unknown family of Nazareth, to a faraway place, and to a humble virgin girl. To the elites in Jerusalem, uh, these folks up in Galilee were thought of with contempt. Even their dialect was offensive. Uh, They were the hicks of the day. Unlettered country people, they were regarded with abhorrence. And yet it is to such a household that the angel comes. A messianic announcement, not the result of learned investigation, not connected with the academy in Jerusalem, the announcement of a Messiah, the offspring of a virgin in Galilee betrothed to a humble worker, a workman. Assuredly, such a picture of the fulfillment of Israel's hope could never have been conceived by contemporary Judaism. Here there was nothing, intellectually, religiously, or even nationally, to attract, but instead all to repel the story almost seems intentionally designed to offend, almost utterly ridiculous to the human mind, as if purposely setting up a stumbling block to the high and the mighty, the story being so unbelievable, a story that surely one would be, must be given a heart of faith just to believe it. Many years ago, Martin Luther commented on that. I quote, he might have gone to Jerusalem and picked the daughter of the high priest, who was fair and rich and clad in gold, embroidered in raiment, attended by maids in waiting, but God preferred a lowly maid from a despised town. End quote. That's Luther. Luke wants us to understand that the greatest story ever told, the most wonderful news ever given, the best tidings ever preached were given to a young girl, to a villager, a peasant if you will, a nobody, a nothing in the eyes of the world from nowhere, living in a non place, a place of contemptible origins to the world. This is the gospel right from the beginning. It comes to the humble, to a remote center of the country, to a place not known for religion or learning, which bordered on the heathen. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles, therefore. Dear friend, I encourage you to make your own application of that. But is Luke not saying something? right from the outset, about the nature of Christ and of his kingdom and of the gospel, that the kingdom of God does not come according to the ways of the world and its power structures, that it does not come upon those whom we might expect, and that no distance or disadvantage of place shall be a prejudice or a barrier to those for whom God has set his favor in store. This is the one to whom the Savior of the world comes. And this is the place from which he comes, from Nazareth. Who would believe such a thing? Only those to whom faith was given. Now another thing to keep in mind is that Luke is not only the historian, he's also a theologian. And he wants to draw us into the response of Mary and into Mary's heart and to her response of faith and of obedience. Because she comes here in the story, the model believer, the model disciple, the example of all believers of trusting in the Lord and submitting to his will. And notice we're not told anything about Gabriel's appearance or even the manner of his coming. Did he have wings uh, like the seraphim of Isaiah 6? Did he hover above the ground? Was he radiant white in his color? Uh, We're not given any of those details. We're told only that he was sent by God. Uh, He was on the Lord's errand, serving God and doing his will, and that he appeared speaking these words, rejoice, or simply greetings. Highly favored one. The Lord is with you, and blessed are you among women. First, she is highly favored. God has chosen her and favored her and uniquely blessed her to be the mother of the Messiah. He has honored her in a way that is peculiar and unique. She is blessed, even above Eve, who was the mother of all the living. Now, the Latin Vulgate translates this, and if you know uh, the great hymn, Ave Maria, uh, Grazia plena in the Latin, or full of grace uh, in the English. Uh, this led medieval Catholicism to gather that she had more of the inherent graces of the Spirit than any person had ever had. Mary accordingly was seen as possessing the fullness of all gifts and graces, even above the angels. And from that position, numerous doctrines emerged about Mary, uh, that she was sinless, that she was immaculately conceived without original sin, that she was taken up to heaven without dying, that she hears the prayers of the saints, that she has a part to play in redemption uh, along with Jesus. Uh, I've quoted to you before, even uh, Raymond Brown, the great and leading Roman Catholic scholar, uh, acknowledged that the familiar words, Hail Mary, full of grace, are too strong that they are based on a faulty translation in the Vulgate. And he, a Roman Catholic, even says that Mary herself would be scandalized if someone would have thought of her in such an exalted way. The word is best translated highly favored, and it refers simply to the singular favor and honor done her in preferring her and choosing her to conceive and to bear our blessed Lord. The angel is not saying that Mary will be a source of grace to others, but simply that God's favor rests upon her in a very unique and special way. The first thing that is said is that she has the presence of God with her. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. It is at once the most ancient and the most precious of promises that in spite of sin and failing, in spite of all fear and doubt that we have, God is not distant from us, but he is very present. God is not estranged from his people, But he is here with us. God is not at war with us, as our sins might suggest, but because of his grace, he is at peace and has made peace with those upon whom his favor rests. And this peace he has made by the cross. He has taken away the enmity. He has washed away our sins by the blood of Jesus. He has made a way through his son and has fulfilled his covenant of peace to be our God, to have us as his people, and to dwell among us. For that is the very essence of his covenant and his promise. I will be your God. I will dwell in the midst of you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, for I am the Lord your God. So says Isaiah 43, 2. And fear not, I am with you. Just a few verses later, Isaiah 43, 5. Beloved, were more precious words ever spoken to a child of God. Nothing is to be despaired of if God is with us. Not any calling he might give, not the performance of any service, if we have God with us. And you too, dear friend, whatever hardship, whatever calling, whatever service, the Lord your God calls you to. He says to you, fear not, I am with you. Now surely we can all agree that Mary is most blessed among women. She will say that herself in the great prayer of praise we call the Magnificat, that from now on all generations will call me blessed. It's not without reason that she is called the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you rightly understand that, if you are a Christian, there is nothing wrong with those words. Mary is blessed. She is the only woman of the billions of women who have ever lived. Now get this, who conceived a child supernaturally as a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her, who carried in her own womb the Messiah and who gave birth to the Son of God and then nursed him at her own breast. Her face is the only face that ever resembled the Savior. Jesus bore surely, in some sense, the likeness of Mary. He may have had her mannerisms and shared some of her gestures, perhaps her way of walking, and shared similar speech patterns and intonations with his mother. Just because others have thought too much of her is not a reason that we should think too little of her. The humble virgin is highly favored of God. Not because of any achievement or stature of Mary. It is all of grace. This is what it means that she is highly favored. One moment she's going about her life. A young teenage Jewish girl preparing for her wedding day. And now this. I don't think we really understand how marvelous this is and how breathtaking this privilege was, how astounding. No wonder the word often translated uh, greetings is actually properly, as we have it here, the word rejoice. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Be full of rejoicing. Now let's notice Mary's response. She was troubled. Her mind was racing. Uh, she was considering, we are told, what was said to her. She was reflecting upon it and what it all meant. Remember now, 13, 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. And what is she doing? Listening. Listening. Reflecting, considering, meditating, and discerning. She's not shallow nor flighty. And It's something, dear friend, you and I need to do more of. I heard someone say recently, the word stuck with me, we need to think about stuff more. And I think it was followed up by No one thinks about stuff anymore. We need to do that. We need to read our Bibles. And when we read our Bibles, we need to consider what is being said. And to think about the ways of God with men. When we look at what is happening in the world today, what's going on in our lives. We need, like Mary, to consider, to think, to contemplate. We need to get off our devices uh, in order to do that. We need times of solitude. We need to think hard about the things of God. It's a theological grace, contemplation is. And for us who are God's people. It is not something that is optional for us. And there's very practical relevance for this. If Christ would be born in us, if Christ would be formed in us and would grow in us, notice Christ lives in and resides in those who ponder God's word. If we would have Christ born in us, we must meditate on his word as well. I will meditate upon your precepts, David says in Psalm 119. You and I need to have those kinds of hearts. Mary may have been simple, she may have been unlettered, but she was not unthinking. And she was not disinterested. And she had a pondering heart, a reflective heart. Later we will read that she treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. And do you have a pondering heart, dear friend, to consider the ways of God? Well, now comes the fullness of the Annunciation. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Listen to the description of him. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest, or of the Most High God. Now Mary learns that the son she will give birth to will be no ordinary son. He will be God's son, the unique son of God, the son of the highest, that he will be great and that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, that he will reign over the house of Jacob Forever. Not just for a period of time, but forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. What is she being told? But that the son to whom she will give birth will be none other than the Messiah. Mary knew this language from her prayer, the Magnificat. We know that she was steeped in Scripture. She knew the covenants, the promises, the history of redemption. She was well taught. One wonders if a teenage Christian today from one of our Bible-believing churches would be as well taught. But from her catechizing, she would have recognized that the angel is using the words of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. There will be and there will arise a son of David who will inherit his father David's throne. And he will rule over Israel forever and will have an everlasting kingdom. And at long last, this is that son. At long last, the Messiah is coming, Mary. The time is now, and you yourself will give birth to him, to the Son of God. His name will be Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Can you imagine, dear friends, hearing such an announcement? Now, we must not skip over this too quickly We should pause at this description. Jesus will be great. How many people today miss this? How many people today fail to realize how great Jesus is? They've utterly missed his greatness. They think he's just fine uh, for us Christians. But he is great. He is great before God and he is great before all people. He is the unique Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the long awaited King. He is taking his rightful throne. He is a king, the King. He has a throne. And unlike David, he will reign forever. And his kingdom shall have no end. And we need to be reminded of this, dear friends. Jesus is a king. And he rules a kingdom, not merely in the future, but now. There's nothing in the Bible, not a single hint to suggest that the inauguration of his kingdom was delayed. The problem is this, that there's. it is difficult to see. You can't see it unless you have faith and see it through the eyes of faith. And that's because it is a heavenly kingdom and the kingdom of Christ rules in men's hearts By his word and spirit. It's often imperceptible. In its growth. In the world. Leading many to say it's not there. But many miss it. Many deny it. But Christ is Lord of all. He is king. And those who do not submit to his kingly reign. They earn his displeasure. And ultimately his wrath. But his favor rests upon those who happily submit to his kingly reign. So Mary reflects on this. She tries to put it all together in her mind. And having considered this, she asks in verse 34, How can this be, since I do not know a man? She's not expressing skepticism about the truth of the announcement. We are not told, as we were told about Zechariah, that she disbelieved. She was simply asking a basic question. How is this going to happen? How am I, a virgin, going to give birth to a child? It's a believing question. Lord, I believe you. I believe what you said, but how shall it be? Now, there are many in the world, and many, I'm sure, in our community, and perhaps some in the church, and maybe even some here this morning, who ask a similar question How can this be? This promise of salvation. This gospel you speak of, how is it possible for me to be born again? How is it possible for me to have my sins forgiven? I've done so many bad things. I've stayed away from God for so long. How could God possibly accept someone like me as his own child? Salvation and forgiveness for someone like me. How is that possible? Dear friend, if you are asking questions like that. If you have an awareness of your own sin. If you have a sense of your own wretchedness. Which is something that many never come to feel. It is the best And it is the most necessary preparation for you to come to Christ and to be saved. But you have to think about the cross. You have to think about the atonement. You have to think about why Jesus came and why he died for sinners like you and me. And the answer to those questions is remarkably similar to the answer that God might give to us. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. There are no, nor are there meant to be sexual overtones here whatsoever. The word overshadowed is the same word used to describe the glory and power of the Lord as he appeared in the temple. In the New Testament, the same word is used on the Mount of Transfiguration to describe the overshadowing, overwhelming glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but not by a divine human sexual act, but by the overshadowing power of God. It is a miracle. You have nothing less here than the supernatural conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ. This is part of that blatantly, unapologetically supernaturalism of the Bible, of which B.B. Warfield so famously spoke and wrote. The virgin birth of Christ stands at the very beginning. It informs us as we come to this miracle, everything that follows belongs to the same order and category as itself. If you find this offensive, you will find it all offensive. God did this because God had to do this. The virgin birth is God's judgment and indictment of the human race. A race so fallen in sin that it cannot save itself. Salvation must be a miracle of God. It must come from heaven. It must come from outside the human race. The virgin birth reveals that we were hopeless to save ourselves. That salvation comes from God from on high. And so, everything about Jesus, then, uh, the incarnation, his conception, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, it all belongs to the realm of the supernatural. Mary was with child. That child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by the intervention of man. It was a miracle. And it is not only Mary who has experienced this miracle. If you are a Christian, if you are born again, you too have experienced the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. You too have experienced the life of Christ being born inside of you and growing inside of you. And though this experience is unique to Mary In another sense, it is something every Christian knows. If you were to ask, how is this possible? How can it be? How can I, a poor, miserable sinner, come to know the grace and favor and salvation of God? The answer is the same. With God, it is possible, but only with God and not by man. For what does the angel say? With God, nothing shall be impossible. Literally, he says, no word of God shall fail. So, beloved, look at the most hopeless, despairing area of your life where change seems absolutely impossible. And I tell you, nothing, nothing shall be impossible for God. And I simply ask you, do you believe that? And listen to Mary's immortal response. Behold, uh, I am the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And we've been talking about faith a lot. What is faith? What does faith look like in a Christian how does faith behave? Here it is God said it, I believe it, and I live and act accordingly. Total assurance in the Word of God, conviction in the heart that what God says is true and certainty of trust and a corresponding direction and trajectory of one's life. This is, if you do this kind of thing, what you ought to underline and put stars around and mark up in your Bible. Can you imagine if the answer had been different? If she would have said, thanks, uh, but no thanks. This virgin doesn't want any part of this. Look at her submission, her obedience, her discipleship. Lord, I am at your service, at your disposal to do what you command me. She does not object, as one might have, to the possible spoiling of her marriage, to the likely blemish upon her reputation, She leaves that and the whole issue with God and submits entirely to his will. Have you ever said that to the Lord? Are you prepared to say that to the Lord? Lord, whatever you say to me, whatever you command me, whatever your will for me might be, have you ever said that? Whatever you think is best. Have your own way. Now there are different ways you might say that. You might say it through clenched teeth. Whatever you say is best. You might say it in an attitude of fatalism. Whatever. Whatever you say. Or you might say it in faith with a submissive heart. I am the Lord's servant. Whatever you say is best. Considering all that it might mean for her, her reputation, her future, her life. But let it be to me according to thy word. Just so. And no other way. She didn't know how Joseph would react. It was not common, but a woman could still get stoned for adultery in that day. There would be rumors of infidelity and of sexual immorality. Jesus would be known as a son of fornication because of this. And ultimately, a sword would pierce her own soul. As she saw her dear son crucified, she would have to learn to see Jesus as her savior and her Lord and not as her son. Uh, Helen Rosevere, uh, do you remember uh, that name? Uh, she died uh, on the seventh at ninety-one. She was born in 1925, raised in a comfortable English family. She says that as a child, she said that she was endlessly active, uh, restless with kind of animal spirits within, always in mischief, uh, an urge to excel, to be noticed, to be the center of attention, needing to be admired. One day in Sunday school, when she was a little girl, the teacher talked to the class about India, and Helen made a quiet resolve that one day she would be a missionary. She was drawn to study medicine, and she studied medicine at Cambridge. While at Cambridge, she attended an evangelistic prayer meeting and Bible study, and was given a new Bible and was taught by an experienced Bible teacher who wrote in her Bible the verse Philippians uh, 3.10, I'm sorry, with these words, Tonight you've entered into the first part of the verse, that I may know him. That is only the beginning, and there's a long journey ahead. My prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of his resurrection and also, God willing, one day perhaps, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Now, by this time, her childhood interest in missions had matured into a sense of God's call. She became a medical missionary at the age of 28, went to Africa, to the northeastern parts of Congo. And once when driving to a meeting, her supervisor said to her, if you think you have come to the mission field because you are a little better than others, or because you are the cream of your church, or because of your medical degree, or for the service you can render the African church, or even for the souls you may see saved, you will fail. Remember, the Lord has only one purpose ultimately for each one of us, and that is to make us more like Jesus. He is interested in your relationship with himself. Let him take you and mold you as he will, and all the rest will take its rightful place. Now, the stresses and challenges of missionary life uh, were great. She suffered many setbacks, experienced tremendous opposition. On one horrifying occasion, Helen Roosevelt was severely beaten and savagely raped. She would go on to say God never uses a person greatly until he has wounded him deeply. She recalled a time of prayer. She was praying words like, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And she would later say there was something like a vision. I didn't see a vision. I didn't hear a voice. But there was God. I just knew every ounce of my being that God was actually there, vitally there in all his majesty and power he surrounded me with his love and he seemed to whisper to me quote 20 years ago you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary this is it don't you want it the privilege she would come to see the privilege of being identified with our savior it was as though he clearly said to me, These are not your beatings. They're not beating you. These are my sufferings. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And one thing became unmistakably clear, and that was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation, it was all there but now it was altogether different. It was for him. It was with him. It was in him. It was the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his suffering. Consider the words this morning, dear friends. These are faith-filled Words, latch on to them with your soul and your being. The Lord is with you. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Behold, the servant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. May he make servants of us all. Let's pray. thank you, uh, Heavenly Father, for your holy word. We thank you for your ways uh, with us, your ways with your people, that your greatest desire above all is our holiness and our sanctification. And our becoming more and more like Jesus, not insisting upon or preferring our own will or purpose, but humbly submitting to you and to your will. Subdue us, Lord, by thy word and spirit, bring us under the rulership of your Son. Jesus Christ, give us hearts to love you, to obey you, to serve you. May we not quickly forget what we heard this morning. May we not so easily turn aside as we so often do back to our ways of sin. But we pray that we would be conformed to Christ, and transformed by your word and spirit, even now. So, Father, change us, we pray. Make us your humble servants, for Jesus' sake.